Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Both Anthony and Karen are delighted um, to be with you this evening. How well do you know each other? Did you two know each other before this? Uh, for a long time, but we we met through politics. So I was a young reporter at the Age, I think the Age, or in the press gallery anyway. And Anthony, we differ on exactly when, but I remember him in Sussex Street as the sort of young left winger in the sea of the right wingers. Um, and so as a young reporter asking stupid questions about politics, I would ring the young assistant secretary and mostly not get abused and mostly get told the answers to my stupid questions and he was very tolerant of those stupid questions. So we got to know each other a bit then and gradually over time, as happens between journalists and politicians, you, you, know, you occasionally catch up and have a meal or something or, or have a coffee and have a conversation and he'll say something about his family background or something will come up personal and then the next time you see them you say oh how's that going and so gradually I came to know um, some of this story about Anthony's background about his mum and how devoted he was to his mum and then when he decided to look for his dad he told me about that. There were a few of us I now discover knew this but we were all isolated from each other and didn't know that the other one knew. Um, he swore us all to secrecy. So we were all harassing him separately to let us tell this story, journalists, I mean, to let us tell this story. And I had tried for a long time to convince him to let me tell it either as a newspaper story or as a TV story, and he said no. But I came up with the idea of a book, and after three long weeks of silence, he finally agreed. So. Well, that's something, that, that probably says something about Anthony too, that a few of you did know this story, but you all honoured him and honoured the kind of sacredness of that, that you held it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he, he had the conversations with all the others, so I can't speak for that. Well, my, while um, people, I guess, are aware of the story by now, um, uh, so I don't have to start at point A, but while my mother was alive, very few people knew, uh, out of respect for her, it would have been a bit hard for her to explain the circumstances about, you know, the dead husband, the widow, sort of suddenly that's not quite right. Um, so... Um, I had told a few people, um, and gradually, I guess, I mean, in part, this is, this is therapy you're part of here, and you're all a part of, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of um, just coming to terms yeah. with who you are and that sense of identity, all that. So I did discuss it uh, with a few people, um, not that many, but there would have been three or four journalists would have known. All of them wanted to do something with it. All of them, I said, bugger off. Um, a lot, a number of times. for a long time, but Karen was particularly persistent um, and I had known her for a very long time um, and I didn't, I, I eventually sort of decided that um, once my father died as well, which was in January 2014, then there wouldn't be 
you know, with due respect to Karen's profession, uh, not all journalists and media entities are as ethical as she is. Um, and I just thought if it appears out there, you know, someone's going to turn up with a camera or with a, you know, film crew in the south of Italy or something. I didn't want any of that. Um, so, but once it was, um, those issues had gone, if you like, uh, then enough people knew as well that I didn't want it to appear as a sort of throwaway line in an article. So, um, I wanted it told properly and the idea of a book um, enabled it to be, I think, given the respect that it deserved. Mm. And this is a, a first for me. I conduct a few of these conversations. I'm lucky, but this is the first time that I've spoken to the author and then had the actual subject sitting alongside me. So it's a kind of a weird um, way... It's, it's weird for us too. <laughs> way, ..way to run it. Because I suppose in the end, I mean, that, that's an incredible story, your, your family story, but this has become a sort of multi-layered book. That's the way I see it about, I suppose, at a time when politicians command even lower respect than journalists, perhaps. I don't know about that, mm. but, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we know where we Straw sit. Pole. <laughs> but um, of values and of courage, decency? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think we should understand our political leaders better than we do, and I don't blame them for keeping things secret. The culture and the media and this country and everywhere these days is very intrusive, and so you can understand why people hold things back. But I do think it informs us better to, to understand where their values have come from and wh what their upbringing was and what might bring them to the political place that they're in. And I think, for me, it was it was interesting to uncover some of that and to, to look into Anthony's background and his family life and to sort of look at where that's brought him politically and where the roots of his devotion to the Labor Party and the South Sydney Rabbitohs and perhaps slightly less to the Catholic Church, um, <laughs> where they've all come from. Um, it, it, it was fascinating for me. Yeah. So with, with that discussion, was it, you know, open slather? You could, you could talk to anyone? Yeah. Yeah, well, I can't stop her talking to people. No. Um, no, no, we... I gave her a list of my enemies. Most, <laughs> of, most Any of, here tonight? <laughs> most of which are public. Yeah. So. I think. I mean. I think the interesting thing is um, when you when you're writing a biography, especially one that contains personal details that haven't been known before. You know, the subject either cooperates with you or they don't. And if they do, then they're quite keen for you to talk to all the people that know and like them. And they'll, while they won't stand in the way of you talking to people that don't like them, they obviously want the best possible version of their life to be out. And, um, and so you have to fight hard to find people who might offer some kind of balancing view. And a lot of those people will see it as a cheerleading exercise. So you, it's, it's a complicated thing to try and find people who, who don't all love him. Um, I don't know and how... I thought you were on a winner with Leo McLean. Leo loves him now. Yeah. I <laughs> Graham Richardson loves him. It's like, really? <laughs> All these old enemies are now friends. Make of that what you will. Um, but, you know, and then, but if, if the subject doesn't cooperate with you, well, then there's no way you get the personal story because they wouldn't tell it and nobody that is close to them would tell it. Yeah. So it, it's, it's naturally a, a kind of a compromise, but um, that was... I wanted that personal story to inform all the politics, and so we, we had some rules. He didn't have a right of veto. He gave me the benefit of his view. Um, frequently, and, and we had a lot of... Very directly sometimes. Mostly quite directly, and um, sometimes I gave it back quite directly. Um, I, think we, I think I worked out we did 40 formal interviews, 
and there are a lot of informal conversations as well. And then I think there are about 70-something other people that I spoke to um, as well. I, I think one of the things about that informed my view about the book was my attitude towards modern journalism, um, which is the, the shortness of the cycle. And, the, you know, you go and of a weird analogy, but you go to a major road um, announcement or railway line and you're there announcing a $3 billion project and the first question from the media is, what's next? Because that's done. Because that's been dropped to the paper. What I didn't want to happen with the, the advantage of a book is like it's all there. There's not a, well, why did your mother choose to do this? Or why did you go here or who did you talk to? Like, it's all there. I don't have to go through being hunted down by people looking for something nasty, a nasty angle. And I was very conscious of, um, I'm a pretty emotional person, I'm a sook, basically, I cry all the time. Nothing wrong with um, <laughs> And uh, I couldn't deal with a, an ongoing um, interrogation about the details. So I was interrogated by one person uh, over and over again, and it's all there in terms of the details. So that was part of my uh, dealing with it. Was a, that was a way to um, cope with it from a, a serious journalist who I respect, rather than you know go to a pack. If it had appeared in an article in the Good Weekend or what have you, and I did a press conference, you know it could have been just difficult. So it was very much a personal decision. Uh, about uh, how to get the story out there all at once. And I suppose the, a lot of the focus has been on the incredible story of finding your father. Um, there's no doubt about that. But in the end, Karen, and your dedication probably says it all, that this book is dedicated to Marianne, to Mary, and all the parents bringing up children alone. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's been interesting, and, and Anthony can probably talk about this too, but I, I thought it would resonate with people who are single parents um, because that's Albo's mum was a single mother and sacrificed a lot and you know took on the name of the absent father and pretended that she had married him and gave Anthony that surname and to give the appearance in 1960s Catholic conservative sort of Sydney of respectability and so I, I have a sense of that you know for single parent families how there's difficulty it's we're not we don't have the same social mores anymore um, but I respect her decisions and the decision, you know, incredible sacrifices that she made to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I've got single parents in my, in my own family and I, I understand, you know, the difficulties that, that they go through. But the other thing that's occurred is people are coming out of the woodwork who are the children um, with a missing parent. Um, and, and, I'm, and I know Albo's had a lot of communications in the last couple of weeks with people who are saying it resonated with them, that they, they're looking for a parent, they found one, they didn't find one, um, but they had a similar experience. Yeah, it, it's been quite extraordinary. I spoke to someone last night who emailed me who, uh, whose mum travelled uh, on a ship from Italy uh, to a different ship uh, to Australia in 1961, so a couple of years before I was born. Um, that's how he came about. She got off the ship pregnant. Um, and he sort of wanted to know how I'd found, um, and unfortunately, you know, there's no, for people who read the book, like it was 
10,000 to 1 that we would find him, frankly. The weirdest um, set of coincidences. A whole lot of things ha mm. had to fall into place. But I, you know, advised him about going to the Australian archives and where to go. And that's the literally fifth discussion directly I've had, so to mm. not exaggerate, but five people have contacted me in the last two weeks who I've had discussed, who it's been personal enough for me to ring them and say, well, you know, maybe this or that. Um, I don't think there are any nuclear families out there anymore. Um, <laughs> I've decided, um, I never thought it was unique. Um, and that in part is why it's worth telling the story as well. You know, to, um, I think Karen begins either the book or the prologue um, with um, talking about when I became deputy PM and talking about being a son of a sole parent in public housing in Sydney, becoming deputy PM, says something about Australia. And, yeah, I think it's worthwhile telling the story if it gives, well, I already know that it is. I, I know from experience of the, I haven't been able to answer them all, actually. It's just growing and growing and printing out emails of sole parents, um, kids, um, people with different family backgrounds who relate to the story and who it's given them um, something positive. Uh, and that's a pretty good thing. There was no question, as Karen writes in the book, that your grandparents, George and Maynor Ellery, would, there was no question that they wouldn't stand by their single pregnant daughter. And this was a real... Well, I'm not sure about that. Karen writes that. Okay. But she wasn't there. Um, I wasn't there either. <laughs> Neither was he. I wasn't there either. <laughs> So I think that, that you yeah, know, but um, I think they were probably, uh, my grandmother was probably a pretty tough woman and very Catholic. Um, my grandfather was sort of much uh, more casual, I guess, as is, but she ran the household. Like, my mother couldn't cook at all. So until my... Thank God for Western biscuits. Oh, well, well, we, um, you know, I thought there were two sorts of vegetables, so peas and beans, and they both came in the freezer. Um, and that was because her mother, who she'd lived with her whole life, wouldn't let anyone else cook in the kitchen, like, full stop. Mm. Um, uh, it wasn't just a gender thing. That was her domain. And, uh, you know, fair enough, that was, mm. gave her the sense of power in terms of the family. But... Um, they certainly did, but I do think, um, you know, the sort of pressure, mm. I probably wouldn't have been as kind to them as, as, uh, as Karen was. I well, there isn't anyone left alive to ask about them. That's the trouble. Because you're right, yeah. loyalty ran at least as deep as the Roman yeah. Catholic faith through the trials of their life together and the tribulations of their children, they always stuck. Sometimes seen as a strength, and sometimes a weakness, it was a characteristic that would emerge in their grandson too. Well, yeah. they were there, but I mean, the, the pressure that, who knows what pressure was placed on mum, I certainly don't know, but the decision of thinking about it, sort of, you know, to put on a wedding and engagement ring, to adopt a name and to say that you're a widow, and, you know, I was supposed to be adopted out, mm. as was the, the really good Catholic thing to do at the time. Um, you know, who knows what pressure was placed on my mum to get to that point. That we don't know, 
But what we do know is that they certainly looked after us. Um, they they, and, yeah, they we took got her to stay in and home. absolutely. Yeah, she stayed. Because you, you're right, it was a compassionate nun that your mum was allowed to actually not only look at you but hold yeah. you, and then it was all over. That was it. <laughs> and I suspect, I, I wonder whether my grandmother was happy about that. I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> the other, I mean, the portrait of, of this devoted single mum. And, and then what's made you, what's influenced mm. you. There is a fantastic portrait in this book, Karen, that you've gathered together by talking to the neighbours and the aunts mm. and the relatives of community, of this kind of, you know, playing cricket in a tiny little, you know, space. But you had, you had fun. It was, it was fantastic. And you really bemoan the kind of <laughs> yeah. development, the, the inner city yuppies moving in and, and taking away kind of spaces like that. Mm. Well, the, the, the picture on the front is the is the housing block that that Anthony grew up in, and it was a great thing for me as a as a writer to discover that it's still there and there are still people, low income people living in it. And in fact, um, Albo knew the woman who's living in it now, and she was kind enough to let us walk through, so I could actually see where things had happened, and that was great for me. But a few of the neighbours are still alive, um, who were more. Anthony's mum's contemporaries and her friends and it was interesting for me to find out who she had told the truth to and who she hadn't quite mm. told everything to but they were great in painting a picture and in fact the one across right across from next door effectively um, is still living there and had been living there when Marianne was there so it helped to paint this picture of this little community this sort of residential island of council kind of flats or houses in, um, surrounded by industry. So there was the Western's Biscuit Factory at the end of the street and there was a, um, there was a car place and a foundry, Kids I think. Hospital. The Children's Hospital across the road. And then there was this little, little island of, of um, low-income council employees mostly in, in these um, flats. And 50, I think one of Anthony's former neighbours said, counted 56 kids. She drew me a mud map and she was going, two here, three here, four <laughs> here, one here, only one here, two here. And we went right round the block. Um, and but that's fantastic yeah. community yeah. to grow up in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah look, it, um, and, and I wanted, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that I've got out of the book is, is that there's stuff in there that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know who my mother had discussed things with um, and who knew what and where about what happened. But I also wanted to um, not do a, you know, oh, poor me, single, you know, mum lived in a shoebox sort of stuff. Because um, that, that, that wasn't it. Like, we didn't have any money, but I think I say somewhere in it, you know, we didn't have any money, but we didn't want for anything either. Um, you know, you don't know, you don't know you're poor if you don't know anything else. Um, and. Um, there was a sense of community around. Um, that didn't mean that there weren't um, issues and, you know, fights and, you know, fallings out and fallings in and in groups and out groups as happens in any Good community. Training. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> lobe party. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you got, uh, <laughs> you got used to, uh, you got used to that. But there was a sense of um, identity and pride because it was, it, it actually is hard to describe unless people really know sort of Camperdown. It was literally one block and it was a long way to any other housing. Like it was surrounded, it wasn't like it was just there was a hospital or a factory. 
it went a long way to the other side of Parramatta Road, which was like Mars. Um, and most people didn't have cars. Um, for people who know Sydney, I had never been to Balmain until I went to uni. I grew up at, at both in my electorate uh, now. Because why would you? Because your entire life consisted of the 470 and the 459 bus route and they went into the city. Um, you just didn't mm. go there outside. Were, there were great stories from some of the neighbours and of the things the kids would get up to, like nicking biscuits from the Western I was going to bring wagon wheels tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently you can't face yeah. them. <laughs> no, I think there were a few illicit wagon wheels consumed and, um, and they didn't obviously have access to a swimming pool either so they used to go up to the <laughs> nurses' quarters and swim in the nurses' pool and get kicked out of there and then go to the travel lodge further up the road and pretend <laughs> they were staying there. So one of his old neighbours told me stories about how they used to sit and wave at pretend parents, you know, in the windows of the hotel until they got kicked out. And she, I think you weren't there this, this day, but she went home, she got kicked out and it was a hot day and she thought it was unjust. So she went home and got her mother's washing powder and um, tipped it into the fountain out the front of the travel lodge and then <laughs> ran away watching the foam covering the 470 bus or whatever it was that had come around the corner. You could just see this neighbourhood of kids getting up to it, no good, but just making their own fun, you know. It was many years later that we thought, I, I never clicked until a long time later, that the nurses who used to yell and come and chase us um, were actually just having a laugh. We thought they were really oh. going to call the police or something like that. <laughs> but you talk about, um, I suppose, the neighbourhood. In the neighbourhood was Sydney University. Yeah. And Karen, I think you write in the book, you say, um, you know, was it the proximity more than the expectation that you would go to that place? Yeah, I think it meant, uh, and it informed my attitude to, to political activity, um, was that the primary school I went to, which was St Joseph's Camperdown, which is the corner of Bissenden Road and Parramatta Road, was on the same block as Sydney University, sort of on the corner. Um, and it just meant we played under sixes, footy training was on St John's Oval. Um, and we, it meant it wasn't completely alien. We didn't know anybody who went to university um, and in, in the flats. Um, I've got a boy now in year 10 and I'm shocked to just discover that school certificate no longer exists. Um, <laughs> no one went to year 12. No one went to year 12 at, in Camperdown. Just, you didn't, you know, it was, what are you going to do? You know, do you get a job, straight job, or do you do a TAFE course or what have you, do an apprenticeship? Um, and so I think that made it less alienating going to uni. And when I finished school, um, I started work the very next week at the Commonwealth Bank and they put me in um, Manning building at Sydney Uni, the branch there. So it meant I was sort of there, so when the marks came through and I fell across the line and got into uni, um, it just meant it was less alienating. So when I was president of Young Labor, we campaigned for the University of Western Sydney really strongly um, on the grounds of, you know, it, it matters, people's connections and Having physical nearby, location. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, I suppose that word expectation rather than just proximity, it's in, in the neighbourhood. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a great story, I kind of left you to university, but when you're at St Mary's, um, you decided that your geography teacher wasn't reading your um, 
your assignments, you're either got a seven or a seven and a half. Yeah. Um, Karen, <laughs> who wants to tell yeah, the story? Well, it uh, wasn't told by me. No, it was told by one of his friends that he set a test for one of his teachers. He had a project, I think it was on volcanoes or something. Yes, it was. And um, he had a project and he's, he was convinced his, his teacher wasn't reading the assignments because he always got exactly the same marks. So he started this assignment writing about volcanoes and then he just wrote absolute rubbish in the middle and then the last couple of lines were about volcanoes and he got the same mark. <laughs> and he, you know, triumphantly... He said, he said it, was, it spewed out paddle pops oh. and mush, marshmallows yeah. and yeah, whatever. Yeah. Just he still got seven and a half. Still got the same mark, but, uh, but as it's, I always do. That's a gutsy thing to do at school, yeah. to kind of front up to your teacher say, you're not reading my work, this is... Yeah, well, I've well, always... Well, he was lucky, he didn't deserve seven and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been... Um, had that little characteristic, I guess. And it's funny, sort of, uh, having your own child teaches you a little bit about, sort of, genetics, I guess. He, <laughs> he has, um, unfortunately, some of my traits, one of which is an absolute outrage at injustice, um, which, of course, is everything <laughs> about his school is unjust, particularly the treatment of He's boys. 15. He's oh. 15. Yeah. Um, there's a, the opening of your chapter, Karen, you say, somewhere between high school and university, Anthony got angry. There was a, there was a flick. Tell us, tell well, us he, about... Well, he says he wasn't an angry person, but other people say that he was kind of angry. And, um, and you know, he got, very, he got very into Labor Party politics and campus politics at, at Sydney Uni. There was a long-running issue. They've been running for decades, actually, about the political economy course, which was the... There were two econ economics courses at Sydney Uni. The left-wing one was the political economy course and then there was sort of st straight economics. And you did both, but there'd been this sort of running battle to try and keep the, preserve the political economy course and not have it folded into the other one. And this became the sort of flashpoint where they had, they had tactical response group police on campus and barricades <laughs> and protests <laughs> and I think he quite enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> it was... It was one of my, uh, yeah, it was a formative political experience because we had, um, uh, there were big demonstrations, so it taught you how to speak in public to hundreds of people and they were, there were some of the demos were very, very big. Um, Sydney Uni has, I guess, that tradition of uh, political activism of the left and of the right and uh, we, uh, we occupied the Merriweather building, the economics faculty, and uh, the, uh, the cops, it was the first time tactical response group were used uh, at, uh, at all, actually. They'd just been established uh, by the Labor government. And, um, <laughs> and they were used against us. Um, and they, they, they walked across, I remember we were in there, um, there were about a dozen of us, including David Ray gets to mention there, a little baby, in there and there were a dozen of us um, in various states of consciousness, some of them, um, because it became a bit of a thing, you know. We had bands um, inside the occupation and um, it was a bit of a good time for some people. Um, and the cops coming across, it was my first ever negotiation with the police that I had to do on a number of other occasions. Um, and they came across the, the roof and I was sort of opened the window, oh yes, we'll put that to them, we'll have to have a meeting, just shut the window <laughs> again. And I think they were so shocked that um, they let us get away with it, which of course we were just waiting for the media to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
so we left, someone got arrested, a friend of mine. Um, we um, then sat and occupied City Road, stopped the traffic going out of the city for quite some time about the police on campus. And the very next day, of course, there was another demonstration and a lot of people occupied uh, the building then. And they stayed there for a week. It was my, one of my first experiences of um, what I would classify, I guess, as touchy-feely sort of politics as well. It was at the time of the Franklin Dam. Um, so they had this talking stick that's spoken about in the book, literally, that whoever had the stick got to speak and then it got passed on to Collective someone else. Collective decision-making. So nothing <laughs> happened. Um, <laughs> and what happened was, you know, people would go off and have lunch, go to the pub, come back, the meeting would still be going because it would never end <laughs> because people would be coming in and out. And so after about a week... People went home literally. and slept at home overnight and came back. And people, it was a great pickup joint, an occupation. People were there for all sorts of motivations. Um, and uh, it became clear to me that for some people, the occupation was the end in itself. And I guess one of the things I've always, I hope, been about was practical outcomes. Um, and so we went in at 6am, a whole lot of us, and said, right, we're actually having a vote and we're leaving. Um, and we did that and got them out of there. Otherwise, they'd still be there. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. But I think, Karen, you quote Joe Scars, mm -hmm. former girlfriend of yours, saying that you... At university, it was Anthony as a fighter. He wanted to fight the right, he wanted to fight the liberals, he wanted to fight people on the council he didn't like, he wanted to fight people who made life harder for his mum, fight people at the university. It was a fight with an agenda to achieve something. Yeah, which is that point that he... he I think he enjoyed the fight, <laughs> but I you think... You wanted an outcome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I was fighting not for its own sake, I, I mm. hope. I don't think I've ever been um, about that. And I think that's one of the... Um, things maybe that comes through with Karen's comment about Leo McLean and Graham Richardson and uh, people is um, I've, uh, I've never, one, I've never inherited anything in terms of a whole lot of people get in a parliament, I've put a lot of people in a parliament, that's the truth, um, a whole lot of people get in a parliament due to patronage or what have you. I took over the heartland of the New South Wales right was Graeme um, with Leo McLean who was a warrior and out of that came a bit of respect, I guess. And I, Young Labor was the same, student politics was the same. I've when been he a says, oh, he means the left faction yeah. Yeah, as the leader of the left. So it was a left-right battle in the inner west of Sydney and the left won in the case of Graeme. Yeah. And, and when you first became an MP, Karen, you tell the story of Leo McClay um, with uh, the whip. Oh, well, and you, put a bit of distance between you and... You can tell the story. It happened to you. <laughs> well, I walked into his office and uh, he was there in the, the Chief Whip's office and he was talking to Graeme Richardson on the phone and he put it on speaker. And uh, he got out the map and he said, I think I've found a place for you. It's the furthest away, R289. <laughs> it's the furthest away from me. <laughs> and therefore furthest away from the chamber. And I said, what about that one? He said, no, no, we've allocated that to the Libs. I tried to get that one. Um, so there I was. Um, but he, to be fair to Leo and what changed our relationship around, um, he knew a lot about the parliament. I was new. I asked him questions. He gave good advice. 
the, I suppose the adage that your mum said to you, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And there's a story early on at university of getting treatment for your mum's hands because she had yeah. terrible rheumatoid arthritis, didn't she? Yeah, a um, mum was um, an, an invalid pensioner, um, the sort of forerunner of the DSP. She had rheumatoid arthritis and a, 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 she was crippled up and the treatments are a bit better now and the drugs are a bit better now. But I think one of the things that happened to mum uh, that informed my attitude towards power and how it's used is a single mum without a husband to stand up for them at that time gets done over. So my mum was a very generous person. So it was, oh, we've got this great idea of this new drug you can try. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, you know, and uh, I, she was one of the first people in Australia to go on prentazone, which is the tablet form of cortisone injections. And she was addicted to it. She lost control of her nervous system. Mm. She couldn't talk. She lost functions. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, it was terrible. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, with due respect to the profession, I'm sure that they were thinking, well, maybe it'll just go away, like in the worst possible way. Um, it was terrible. And no one with someone to stand up for them would have been treated like that. I was a little kid. And uh, she couldn't use, a lot of times she couldn't use a knife and fork. And a friend came home. Um, and uh, was there, had dinner, saw that I had to cut up mum's food uh, for her um, and said to me afterwards, we went to the pub or something and said, you know, how long has it been like that? And I was like, well, you know, it's getting progressively worse, but, you know, ever since I can remember. And he's... Mother worked as secretary to a guy called Dr. David Champion, an orthopaedic surgeon based at St Vincent's and at Sydney Hospital. Um, hooked up an appointment, um, reconstructed her hands and feet so that she was much more mobile um, than uh, she was you know, years earlier. Her health actually got better because she got proper treatment, not just treated like someone else, she's just a pensioner from the flats. Um, and it, it made an enormous difference. I don't think I could have moved out at ho of home um, if she hadn't have got better, basically, been more mobile and able to look after herself a lot. So it made a difference uh, to all of us, uh, to, to both of us, um, in terms of our lives. And it just, it just struck me that that chance, if you're one of the ways that class operates in society, is ways that aren't tangible. It's not just about income. Um, it is about um, being connected up. I mean, finding uh, my father. I know the person who's the head of Carnival, Cruises. I know there's those connections that you make. And I think a lot of the sort of, um, you know, classless society stuff ignores all of that, ignores it's not just about income, it's about power, it's about relationships, it's about a whole mm. structure of society. When talking about your father, of course, Karen, you have the chapter Father Figure about Tom Uren and the importance of that. Yeah, it was interesting to me that, um, you know, there's this thing about mentoring the, the generation that comes behind you in the Labor Party. They're very big on, on the 
you know, each faction sort of looking after their own and making sure there are people coming behind. And there were a group of the sort of elders of the left faction in New South Wales who used to meet regularly, one of whom was, was Tommy Wren, and they would identify the young leaders coming up and talk about them. And they'd picked him out, um, but they were worried about him because he was a bit of a firebrand and he didn't have a dad and they thought he needed a kind of firm guiding hand. So they, between themselves, decided that that would be Tom Uren. So Tom um, offered him a job in his office. And I think you, you, well, you say that you kind of didn't realise how preordained it all, it all was. You went for the job interview and you were kind of all nervous and then you, you tell the rest. <laughs> I, I walked out of the office and uh, Frances Reese, who's Nathan Reese's mum, worked for... Uh, Tom, the former New South Wales Premier, I said, oh, I don't know how it went. And she said, when can you start? <laughs> um, who knew that a fix could be put in on the Labor Party? <laughs> but they grew, they grew very close and it became a very close relationship. And, and Anthony was the, uh, what's it, MC, it's not the right word, at, at Tom's funeral service. Yeah. At, um, the Sydney Town Hall a year or two ago. That's a fantastic quote from you. It's really weird. This, this yeah, <laughs> it's really weird. But but um, you you said to Karen, just analysing the whole influence of Tom Uren, you say you learn from history, and Tom was living history. Oh, absolutely. He'd been through. Um, I, I think that the Second World War was such an extraordinary time, um, and I think uh, in terms of. Uh, his knowledge of, you know, his experience of the Great Depression, his experience of hardship in terms of being a prisoner of war of the Japanese for four years. Um, the fact that he came out of that without any bitterness towards the Japanese and indeed was anti-military uh, or militarism, um, anti-nuclear, um, anti-racist uh, and was such a strong figure, I think was... Um, remarkable mm. and I got to really connect with him when I went uh, overseas to um, to the opening of the Kanchanabu, the, uh, Hellfire, the Pass. Hellfire Pass, the, mm. the railway that uh, that they helped build uh, himself and people like Weary Dunlop and Louis Butterworth and Sir John Carrick, these amazing Australians and uh, oh, just remarkable men to and they were all men. Uh, who came through that uh, and being there uh, with him, he talked about it on the plane on the way over. It's the only time we really talked about it in great detail um, and, you know, I can keep conversations private. I didn't go into that detail with Karen, but he went into a lot of detail. Um, and then being over there with all these blokes coming up saying, Tom stood in front of a soldier who was about to bayonet me or Tom did this. This is a big bloke. He fought for the Australian Heavyweight Boxing Championship as well. Um, so I got to know him uh, really well through that. He developed an independent friendship with my mum, uh, uh, Mary-Anne, and uh, we developed a sort of relationship of... Uh, uh, he used to say I was his political son uh, something that uh, I find quite humbling given uh, his remarkable um, character that he had and I think his send-off. Um, he told me about 10 years before he died uh, that I was being the MC and he had all the order all done. 
when we sat down with uh, the PMNC people uh, to organise the funeral when they came in to the Sydney Town Hall, um, they were completely just horrified by the idea of the detail that was all there, including the send-off from the East Timorese who we had to organise for them to carry these ceremonial swords, which are like these weapons, on the train. Uh, <laughs> not easy to walk around on a train in Sydney with a sword these days, funnily enough. Uh, dressed in traditional national costume, but we had to organise it all. He chose the music, he did everything. And it was a great honour of my life uh, that, uh, that he got to see... Uh, I got to uh, to perform that role. And Karen, with the influence of Tommy Arena and then the Sussex Street. Yes, that's right. I think um, we should open for questions. Yes, we will. We? Just, um, just to... Yeah, yeah, the, the, um, the Sussex Street... Well, the Tommy Arena was a huge influence, as you said, but mm. Sussex Street, I thought, was hilarious because, you know, this left-wing guy... And I would ring as a young reporter, so I had some understanding of the sort of... <laughs> I can't talk, I'm in enemy territory, like, inside the Labor Party office. Um, <laughs> And, and the way they behaved, they, they did behave as though they were in opposing political parties and there's a great story which was reported at the time but um, I go into some detail in the book about how they, Anthony went on a study tour overseas and they dismantled his office and turned it into a library and changed the locks and just literally it was gone <laughs> when, he, when he came back. And so the left supporters, Carmel, so Carmel mobilised the left in, in your absence, I think, and you got back in just in time and then they, they just put it back. And Meredith Bergman told me she was frustrated because she was a representative of the academics union and she thought it was ridiculous that she was the only one who turned up with tools. Like, <laughs> the other unionists didn't. But they did physically smash the place up and put it back the way it was. So. Um, now, we will open it up to questions. If you will, um, the lovely Catherine and, and Colin will get microphones to you. Um, funnily, tomorrow I'm talking to Bob Connolly who, of course, made Rats yeah. in the Ranks. You, Karen says, you wisely decided not to be on camera. Absolutely. But you're on the end of phones in that film. Best non-appearance in a feature film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a really good story about one of the councillors, Kate Butler, who miraculously later appeared on the ballot for Grainler, Kay Butler, and the main opponent of Albo in that ballot was Kevin Butler. So... Never make it easy. Coincidentally, Kate Butler appeared, which confused the voters. Which Kate Butler, you know, I don't know that it. I don't know that it garnered that much extra vote. But now, if, just raise your hands, and Catherine. Um, the other, there's so many parts of this book, and it, and it kind of just tells us a lot about you. What Karen's done, I think, is is fantastic. I can't believe how many people she's spoken to, but the terrific analysis about the time that Kim Beasley lost the leadership to Kevin Rudd and it was the same day that his brother died of a heart attack and he gave a very emotional mm. press conference and says family is everything. It was a real moment for you too, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was a... Uh, I was, uh, for whatever my uh, sins, I was very... I always, you don't want me on your side in a leadership ballot because you lose. Um, I backed Beasley against... Uh, Cream, we lost. Beasley against Latham. Beasley against Rudd. Rudd against Gillard. Um, I never won. Um, <laughs> I didn't even win myself. And you're the numbers guy. And, and, and I got 18,000 <laughs> votes out of 30,000. Go figure. <laughs> okay, let's go. Great. Uh, Caitlin, sorry, you had 
Look, I am at the risk of talking about a personal conversation. I, I don't think he'd mind um, that uh, I'm a friend of Andrew's. I'm a supporter of voluntary euthanasia, but I told him I thought he went far too hard uh, in that speech. Was my view with regard to singling out uh, the uh, the Catholic Church and the his angle. Um, you know, you can have a different view on voluntary euthanasia um, without being religious. Um, Lindsay Tanner is a good friend of mine. He didn't support it. He was one of the leaders of the anti-voluntary uh, euthanasia argument. Um, and I'm of the view that you have to... I genuinely always support conscience votes on issues uh, that are much... It's not... I'm in a minority in my faction... Uh, on that, um, but I think where people um, hold genuine views relating to their views, if you force them to choose between what they think their God, their spirituality is telling them and um, a political party, then you, you force people into a corner, I think, and, and don't particularly advance the debate. So I think voluntary euthanasia, you can debate without having a crack at anyone's uh, spiritual views. Um, I think majority of Australians support it. I think there'll be quite an irony. I'm waiting for the debate about the need for a plebiscite on voluntary <laughs> euthanasia. Because <laughs> uh, I think it, uh, I think it's pretty clear what the outcome would be on that. And I'm surprised that some people who are arguing for a plebiscite about uh, other people's lives aren't arguing that. Okay, I think up the back here, if we can get the microphone there and oh, just... Oh, you've got one. Great. Thanks for that. Great discussion there. Uh, one of your um, parts on your resume on that is obviously playing a DJ. Um, <laughs> so I was just wondering, like, out of the songs in... Uh, out of the stories in the book and the things that are discussed in the book, were there any soundtracks oh. that you'd be able to uh, pick out um, that would, I guess, go along and, and, and be critical of those parts of your life? Oh, there'd be a... Should have put a CD in the back. Right? That's a great idea. There'd be Next a few. One, the reprint. You can, you can <laughs> certainly get Love Will Tear Us Apart in there and um, Born to Run, I think, is a bit of a, uh, a theme in there that you could get. Can of Worms. Uh, open. Yeah. That's not a song. <laughs> <laughs> See what I had to deal with? <laughs> Just warming up. It um, would. I'd go off on complete tangents. <laughs> Microphone. Where is it? Other questions? I was just, Karen. I want. You're a veteran political journalist. <laughs> what What has writing this book taught you about politics? Um, oh, it's, I'm far too familiar with the inside of the New South Wales Labor Party, but much more than I ever needed to be. But oh, it's, it, it is interesting. I just think that thing about relationships and. What, what Anthony said, but it, the way relationships develop and what they foster and that thing about um, who you know and how power is transferred and shared. I mean, they're, they're all things you know already, but when, when there are lots of stories that illustrate them, it's very interesting. And uh, the, the, the way the New South Wales Labor Party operates, the sort of incredible warfare, faction against faction, and I, I'm also fascinated that they they have um, they'll argue that they're they're fighting for the greater good, and the greater good could be the national good, the Labor Party good, 
the left good, the elbow bit of the left good, or the personal good. And it's, it, it shifts around and sometimes it's all of those at once and sometimes you have to look really carefully to see which bit of that is, is being fought for at one, any one time. And so it, politics interests me anyway, but when you see it with sort of human faces like that, it's very, it's very interesting. What, what has this process taught you? Um, oh, I, I think it, um, that there's some factual things that I learnt in there about my own family um, that Karen managed to, uh, to go through. I think it forces inevitably a lot of self-examination. Um, I found, um, at, at, at the risk of, of you know, being too weepy about it, I found the last few weeks pretty difficult. Um, yeah, in terms of sleep and all that sort of stuff. Um, I did something the other day and it was like, oh my God. And I sort of added up uh, how much sleep I'd had. And that was, of course, it churns up a whole lot of things, memories and things. And you do think, I wish I'd have done that better or I wish, you know, something different had have happened. Um, you know, there's inevitably, you know, there's things that aren't in there, the sort of, you know, you would have needed a squillion pages um, to uh, to cover off uh, off everything, but I think it it also I think gives people a bit of a, an insight into a whole lot of things. Growing up Catholic in the inner city, into uh, and the inner city is a different place now. I mean, it's gentrified. Camperdown used to be, you know, you came from Camperdown. It wasn't, you know, uh, the best address in the world. Uh, it is now. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's very much, um, very much changed and it captures, I think, a, a bit of history. I mean, I'm glad it's there, including a bit of history in terms of the left the, and the Labor Party. The Labor Party's a very different beast now. Um, you know, it's far less conflict than... It is impossible to state how, how much conflict there was in terms of the warfare. Like I was the Assistant State Secretary, I'd pick up the phone and it'd be dead because the phone would be cut off regularly. <laughs> so I'd have to get you know, someone to come in and put it on and to pay the bill and that sort of stuff. It was, um, you know, it was pretty tough. Good training for a minority parliament, as I point <laughs> out. Well, there's a couple of nasty incidents. Yeah, 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 well there was some, you know, yeah. at, branch meeting things, some pretty ugly like knife, yeah, yeah. knife yeah. threats and all sorts of things, yeah. People bring gun licences saying, that's the, only, that's the only idea I've got. Get the message. Oh. We got the message. <laughs> Up the back, we've got a question. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Oh, look, um, <laughs> Karen's just trying to get another yarn here. If I misspeak it uh, over any of uh, any of those issues, oh look, I didn't have. If you read the book too, the, the truth is that no one had mentioned. Um, I, I say in the book, I've said this publicly as well. If a single journalist in the gallery can find me saying any time before. I became deputy PM, I might lead the Labor Party, then they're welcome to 
to say it. They're welcome to out me. I didn't do that as a team player. I was from the New South Wales left of the Labor Party. You didn't, that wasn't even a concept, you know. Uh, when I went into Parliament, if I got on the front bench, I had to fight to get on the front bench. There were more conservative elements were determined to, to stop me getting there. Um, so it wasn't something that was a, an ambition I had. Um, I didn't have an ambition to go into Parliament. It's sort of just, you know, I, I was a political animal um, and the redistribution happened and there was a seat, Grainler, where I happened to have put my old base where I grew up in Camperdown was in the same seat as Marrickville where I lived and the left that I'd put together had the numbers. So, um, so I didn't have that sense. And one of the reasons um, on the election was the Saturday, I declared I was running on the Friday. Uh, I gave Bill six days head start because I wasn't sure I wanted to be leader of the Labor Party, to be honest. Um, and in the end, I had to be satisfied that um, I obviously thought I was worthy, otherwise I wouldn't have put myself forward, but I had to think that. I wasn't someone... Um, I think a whole lot of people in leadership positions, um, I'll use it on the other side, Turnbull always wanted to be PM. I don't think Abbott did necessarily. I think he does now. Um, <laughs> but... But Turnbull went into Parliament to be leader. You know, Abbott went into Parliament because of his ideas and because to make a difference for his particular point of view. Um, I think it's, it, it's different. Now, I'm not arguing I'm more like Tony Abbott. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, I, I, I copped it. I didn't complain. Um, it's pretty obvious that if you get the vote that I got, I could have complained. Like, I could have you know, campaign. People speak about Labor Party's unity. Unity is determined not by how winners respond, but by people who don't succeed respond. That's what determines unity. And there was an event in a recent New South Wales, a, a federal parliamentary caucus ballot, selecting the front bench, whereby people who weren't successful responded very differently and threatened to sort of, you know, I think that says a lot about how you keep the show together and I've always been more concerned with being a team player um, and trying to get Labor elected. Going to have another crack? At who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, at who? I thought you meant then. <laughs> the, the last line of the book, Karen. Yes, he says he's... I'm, I'm patient. I'm a Souths fan. Yeah, completely. In, <laughs> not in the context at all. Um, is there any other questions? I think I think we're going to wrap. And I think corner. Professor Warhurst is here. <laughs> Fantastic, John Warhurst. Um, thank you. Thanks to thank the you. author. Author, yeah. author. Yeah. Subject. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.